Tonight we're going to take a little step further, still not focusing exactly on the family, but dealing with a topic that is very applicable to family situations, and that is this very common term that we hear, communication. And uh, some have suggested, and I tend to agree, that the lack of communication might be the greatest problem in homes today. And the reason for that is not necessarily because if you would take a survey and, and somebody come to your house and say, what's the greatest problem in your house? Very few people would say, well, lack of communication. Probably most of us would say, not enough money or something like that. I don't know. But the simple fact is that if we in our homes could communicate, then we could work well on all of the other problems that come our way. But if we can't communicate, then we can't solve any of the other problems. And so lack of communication may very well be the greatest problem overall in the home today. I want you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and we'll look tonight at a passage that has been used by many to draw out some principles on the matter of communication, and uh, they can certainly be applied into our homes. I want to remind you that when Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 4, he was not writing about communication in the family. The principles that we will look at tonight and the instruction that we will find is good for all Christians in every setting. We can apply it with friendships, we can apply it in our church fellowship, but we can certainly apply it very, very well in our homes. Let me read beginning in verse 25. We'll bow together in prayer. I want to give just a few other preliminary remarks and then we will look at the text and try to draw out some guidelines for communication. Verse 25, we read, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the Son go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this and other opportunity to be together. We thank you that we can open your word, receive your truth. Our heart's desire is that thy Holy Spirit might take the word and apply it to us tonight in our particular situations and that we might receive it so as to change where necessary in our lives, and that in our homes things might be different if they need to be improved, that indeed that would take place. So, Father, we'll thank you for what you'll do tonight and on through this week, because we seek your blessing, and we seek it in Jesus' name. Amen. Think with me for a moment about the whole idea of communication. Communication is not an end in itself. But communication, the ability to communicate, has to do with achieving in our homes and in our relationships what I would call a loving understanding of the people around us. You and I need to be understood. You probably feel bad when you think you've been misunderstood. And so you and I need to be understood and we need to understand the folks around us. And that takes a whole lot of work. You have to work hard to be understood. You have to work hard to make sure you're not misunderstood. And it's a difficult thing. And our goal is that we might understand one another. And again, especially in our homes where we spend so much time with one another. But notice that we added the little term loving understanding. It's not simply to understand somebody so as to judge them but it's a loving understanding. It's to say, hey, I want to be understood and I want to understand the people in my family so that we can minister to one another, so we can be of encouragement to one another. It is a loving understanding that we seek in our homes and in our dealings. Communication. You can communicate in a number of ways. Probably the most difficult way is writing. Your pastor is a good writer. But many folks are not good writers, and many times when we try to write, we do not do well in communicating exactly what we want to get across. Let me suggest to you, if you ever have a problem with somebody, don't write to them. Don't write to them. 
call them, see them personally, don't write to them. If they're already angry with you, they will take what you write and use it in the wrong way. They'll misunderstand. It's difficult to write. We communicate best, perhaps, in personal one-on-one -on -one conversation. And the reason is because we have a whole lot going for us when we are talking with somebody. We have our words, we have voice inflection, we have facial expression, we have gestures, we have all kinds of things that we can use to get our message across. And so when we can talk with one another, if we will in fact listen to one another, then we can have some good communication. We communicate in other ways. There is what has commonly been called nonverbal communication. And that usually has to do with gestures and, and body actions and so on. Suppose, uh, you know, we're here this week and you come up and you say something like, uh, uh, Brother Griffith, uh, do you have a moment so I can talk to you? And right away I fold my arms, I say, yeah. Well, I've not only communicated with my, yeah, but I also communicated with that. And uh, so we communicate. Maybe in your home, you know how it is, you know, uh, uh, you as a man, maybe you walk in one day and nothing's been said, but you know something's wrong. There's just something in the air, and you say to your wife, what's the matter, honey? And she may or may not tell you. Or, let me get on the side of the ladies for a minute, you poor gals, you've been working all day, you know, at home or whatever it is, and all of a sudden he walks in. And he hasn't said anything yet, but you just know. Stay away from daddy. <laughs> Nobody said anything, but there's a message there. Nonverbal communication. By the way, we also communicate by the way we dress, don't we? And sometimes the young people struggle with that one from time to time, but the simple fact is that the way you and I dress, the way we appear, gives forth a message. And sometimes there's a lot of folks who are trying to say, well, I am really sold out to the Lord, and their appearance does not communicate the same message. And they get mad if you misjudge them. But I want to tell you something. Young people, you and all of us, if you and I want to go through life trying to convince folks that we love Jesus Christ, we are going to have to match that verbal message with the way we appear. That's just simply the way it is. So communication, there's a lot of it. It's going on all the time. Most of it is verbal communication, but certainly actions are involved. And the Word of God has some guidelines for us that can help us if we'll simply give heed to what it says. So look with me then as we go a little further to verse 25. And in verse 25, we have the first guideline, which I'd simply call speaking the truth and taking the added admonition from verse 15. We'd say speaking the truth in love. Paul says, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The first matter that comes out of that verse is what I think I first read pointed out by Brother Walter Fremont in his book on the family where he noted that very often in a family setting one of the partners will be the blow-up person and the other partner will be the clam-up person. Now that may not be the case in your home, but often that's the case. Often there's one who, when there's a problem, boy, they just let her fly. You know, they'll tell you quick exactly what's wrong and how they feel about it. And there might be tears involved and there might not, but I'll tell you, you never have to wonder what that person is thinking. The other person often tends to be the clam-up person. Sometimes they almost take pride in it and they say, well, you know, when there's a problem, I just don't say anything. I never say anything. I just don't get involved. Listen, neither of those help with communication. It doesn't do any good to be the blow-up person because you might get your ideas out, but I'll tell you what you say often hurts deeply those who have to listen. And the clam-up person, you're obviously not getting your message across other than maybe that you're mad and disgusted, but nobody's working on the problem, and the message of the Scripture is speak. Speak. Unfortunately, often we let people think that the only time we mean business is when we have raised our voice. Many times we as parents have communicated that to our children. 
Many times our kids think, you know, unless my dad is screaming or my mom is yelling, I know they're not really serious. It isn't until they're really yelling that I know I better get over there if they're calling. But as long as they're just saying, uh, Billy, would you come over? Uh, Johnny, I need your help. You know, problem. But as soon as they really let it out, I know, hey, I think they really do want me. You and I need to learn to simply talk, or as the text says, to simply speak without the emotions getting too involved, to simply be able to speak to one another. And in the context of the speaking, the admonition is putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Folks, truth is extremely important. It is extremely important in our homes. There must be in our marriages a commitment to truth, a commitment to truthfulness, a commitment to honesty. Honey, I will always tell you the truth. And that means there's not a slanting of the story. There is not exaggeration. There is not the withholding of certain elements, but there is an openness there is an honesty where we can believe one another and believe in one another. And I want to tell you something. Once that trust is broken, it is extremely difficult to ever rebuild again. There must be a commitment to truth. Let's take a little bit further. It is not only a commitment to truth, but it is also a willingness to hear truth. In other words, I need to have a commitment that when I speak, I'm going to tell the truth. But I also have to be willing to hear the truth as a part of communication. Think with me of this text from the book of Proverbs. You may be very familiar with it. It says in Proverbs 17:6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now here's a setting where there is a friend who is called faithful, but the faithful friend is wounding his friend. What's happening? What's that all about? There is a commitment to truthfulness, but it's on the, the side of the speaker who looks at somebody else and says this, I need to tell you the truth it's going to hurt, but I'm not telling you to hurt you. I am telling you to help you. I need to tell you the truth. You and I have to have such relationships in our home that we can fit into both sides of that. That we will so love our mates that we'll tell them the truth, not to hurt them, to help them. And on the other side, we will so trust our mates that we'll be able to receive the truth without getting angry. All of us go through life seeing things our way, seeing things from our perspective. We all have what some have called the blind spots. And I look at a situation and I see it a certain way, and you know, often I need somebody beside me who sees it just a little differently, or perhaps sees it a little more clearly, who can step in and say, now, Alan, listen, you're not seeing it right. You've got your mind made up. You've got, you know, you got it all settled, but there's, there's more to it than what you're seeing. And I need to tell you the truth so that you can see it better. Now, if you want to put that whole idea to test, here's what you want to do. In our marriages... We as husbands need to go to our wives and say something like this. Honey, I want to be the best husband that I can be. I want to be the best dad that I can be. Maybe now that I'm getting older, I should add this one. You need to be, I want to be the best grandfather that I can be. And then I turn to my wife and I say, so if you see ways that I can improve, I invite you to tell me. I want to be a better husband. If I'm messing it up, I want you to tell me. Now, don't tell me to hurt me. 
Don't tell me just to put me down, but in a loving way, I want to hear it. I need to hear it. And by the same token, the wife can turn to her husband and say, and I want to be the best wife I can be and the best mom I can be and the best grandmom I can be, and, and I need to hear it. I want to hear it. I want to be the best for God that I can be. I invite you to tell me the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But we need that kind of relationship. We need that kind of fellowship in our marriages. There needs to be total openness. When you got married, God did something that no preacher could ever do. God took two and made them one. Now, when God did that, if there was anything in terms of the miraculous occurring today, that was it. Our challenge in marriage is now to live out the oneness that God created when we got married. And one of the ways of doing that, at least, is to be totally open with each other. When you and I first meet someone, we seldom tell them the whole story. When you first meet somebody, you are very careful, at least most people are, with what they share with someone. And so when you first meet somebody, you might say, well, my name is, and, and I live here, and, and I work there, and, and that's all you tell them. As you begin to develop a friendship with that person, you find that you can trust them with a little bit more of yourself, and so you begin to tell them a little more. And as that friendship deepens, you might begin to take that person into even more of a confidant relationship, and, and you begin to share with this person maybe some of your problems and uh, some of your burdens. And then if you really get a very, very close friend, this becomes the person to whom you can open and share virtually everything. This is the one you take into your confidence when you have the greatest problem and the greatest struggle or great fears or whatever it might be. This is the one you really open up with. Now let me tell you something. That one must be your mate. Not your mom or your dad or your brother or the guy at work or the gal next door. It must be your mate. And many times in marriages, there are folks who are married with one another and they still have others as this personal confidant. Oh, I always, I always talk to my mom about it before I ever tell him. Well, you know, I, I like to talk to one of the guys at work. You know, I kind of like to hear what he says before I ever share it with my wife. Hey, listen, God made you one. And the one that we talk to and share our burdens with and share our fears with and share our goals with, that one whom we open up to the most is supposed to be our mate. And if by chance that's not the way it is in your home, I suggest to you that while that is only one measurement of your relationship, it is one and it is a significant one that may testify to a shallowness in your marriage that must be worked on. Total openness, total honesty. We don't hide anything from one another. We can talk about anything and everything with one another because we are one and we're walking through life together under the blessing and guidance of God. Look with me at verse 26. A second guideline that I call settling problems quickly. Verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now notice the statement says, Be ye angry. God is allowing for the concept of anger. Anger in itself is a legitimate concern over what is right and what is wrong. Anger does not necessarily include temper, and it ought not. And that's why the warning is, be ye angry and sin not. On two occasions, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, went to the temple and cleansed it. 
I believe it would be fair to say he was angry. We sanctify anger by calling it uh, righteous indignation. That's an okay term, but it's anger. Now our Lord Jesus, when he went to the temple, said, you've taken my father's house, a house of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. He was angry. Never sinned. Never lost control. Under perfect control. But he was angry. And God is telling us there is a place for you to be legitimately concerned over what is right and what is wrong and do something about it, but there is no place in your life for temper and sin that too often accompanies anger. And then the text recognizing that there are problems among Christians, and in our context this week there are problems in the home, but the text goes on and says this, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Let me share with you some statistics that you may be very well aware of already. It is estimated that 50% of all marriages established today will end in divorce. Now, I think that is more significant than ever because there's a whole lot of people who don't even have enough moral fiber to get married. A whole lot of people are simply living together, as you know. But even of those who still care enough to, in fact, get married, 50% of those marriages will end in divorce. Sometimes people have this attitude, well, you know, my problem was I married the wrong person. And so they think, if I get married a second time, I'm going to find the right person. Two-thirds of all second marriages in this country end in divorce. In 1994, one million children saw their home destroyed through divorce. And it is estimated that of those one million, half of them will see it happen again as the parent they live with reestablishes another marriage and then goes through divorce again. And I don't have to tell you this. Christians are not exempt. I'm sure it has touched this church as it has every church. The Bible says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Divorce, to the best of my knowledge, has never occurred over a single problem on a single day. No couple has ever had one squabble, looked at each other and said, okay, that's it, we're getting divorced. Doesn't happen that way. What does happen? What happens is there are problems that never get resolved. They don't get resolved and they begin to build up and it goes on for a week or a month and months and then a year and perhaps years and eventually after all of the hurt and the heartache that has never been resolved, two people look at each other and say, you know something, I don't love you anymore. You're not the same person you were when I married you and they end up divorced. There was a lady who came to me one time and she carried with her a little black book and she opened that book to share with me that there were a list of offenses and the dates of the offenses committed against her by her husband. There it was. On this date, he did this. On this date, he said that. On this date, and there it was. Now, you and I laugh. That's that lady's crazy, right? Ah, well, she's close to it. But I want to tell you something. Most of us don't need little black books. Because we got it right here. And you, if you want to test that, you think about the last time you had a squabble in your home, and let me ask you something. Were you at that time able to bring up the past? Were you able to say something like this to your husband or wife? You always do that. You never do that. I'm tired of you always doing this. And what's happened is we are keeping an account of the offenses and the hurts and the heartaches. And God says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You and I, in obedience to the scriptures, have to learn to settle the problems the day they occur. And most of the time, maybe not every time, but most of the time, folks, the only thing that gets in the way of that is our pride. That's all. 
We don't squabble over earth-shaking things. We squabble over dumb little things. You know, what he said, and she thought he said that, or she thought she meant that, or that's the way it was said, or whatever. That's the kind of stuff that we squabble over. And too often we take those things and we tuck them away and we carry them, and sometimes people don't talk to each other for a long time, and, and uh, when they do, it's not very nice, and, and it goes on and on and on. And it's that kind of thing that leads to the hurts and heartaches that ultimately will result in divorce. And again, Christians are not exempt by any means. Notice, if you will, verse 27. Verse 26 ends in a colon, meaning the sentence is yet to be continued. And verse 27 says this, Neither give place to the devil. The term place carries with it the idea of territory, a piece of territory that might be battled over. And so the instruction is, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, and if I could put it into my words, don't give the devil any territory. I want to tell you something. He's trying to get territory in your home. He's trying to get territory in your family. He's trying to ruin your marriage. And if he can, he will. And every time you and I have a problem in our home and pride gets in the way and we don't humble ourselves before one another and we don't get the thing settled, we are just giving Satan a little bit of territory. May I remind you that our marriages are not just physical relationships, they are not just emotional relationships, they are spiritual relationships. And they are often a place of spiritual battle. Satan will destroy your testimony for Christ if he can destroy your marriage. He'll destroy your testimony for Christ if he can destroy your home. And he seldom misses the opportunity. And so you and I need to realize what is happening in our lives day after day. Too often we are hurting one another by what we say, don't say, whatever, and then we allow the problem to be multiplied in impact when we don't get it settled immediately. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now that's a tough one sometimes, but again, as pride is the problem, it is the simple willingness to humble ourselves before one another that usually is the solution. And that can be tough, but God resists the proud and God will give grace to the humble. Let us humble ourselves before one another, even in our homes, and God will minister to us and strengthen us. Settle the problems quickly. Look with me at verse 29. In verse 29, we read this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Paul says, don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. For us who know the Lord, that obviously means no profanity, no vulgarity, no uncleanness of any kind could ever come out of our mouths. It also goes beyond that, however. It also includes little digs, little digging remarks, a little uh, innuendo. Sometimes we are uh, insinuating some things. All that's corrupt communication. In fact, corrupt communication includes also the whole idea of verbal attack and name-calling. Let me remind you of a little saying that you learned when you were a child, and I learned it too, went something like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. How many of you knew that when you were growing up? Yep. What's wrong with it? It's not true. You know, it's great to use, you know, when, when there's uh, some bully over there and you're running away from him, you know, and you say, sticks and stones will break my bones, names will never hurt me. But the problem is, in life, Names, and again, broaden that to what people 
say hurt us deeply. Deeply. As a matter of fact, the things that we have said to us will hurt us far more deeply than any stick or any stone. And by the same token, what we say to others can hurt them far more deeply than any stick or stone. God warned us in a whole chapter of the Scriptures written by James of this tongue and what it can do. That on the one hand, it can bless God and then turn around and curse men. And James said, my brethren, these things ought not to be. And he told us that this tongue is a fire and it is set on fire of hell. He told us that it cannot be tamed. The implication being no man can tame his own tongue. It can only be tamed by the Spirit of God. But listen, it must be tamed. Now, I call the guideline out of this verse striving to build the house. And I want to tell you why I call it that. In this verse, you find the little term edifying. Let me read the verse. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, if you take the Greek term edify and literally translate it, you translate it this way. Build the house. Build the house. To edify means to build the house. Paul writes to Christians and says, Now listen, you can't have any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You have to speak that which is good to the use of building the house. So it can minister grace to the hearers. Now let me make the application to our context. Today in your home, there has been much conversation. You awakened this morning and there was conversation. Through the day there was conversation. You got home, the kids after school, and then around the dinner table and so on. There's been conversation, perhaps a lot of it. And I want to tell you that our conversation in our homes today have either built the house or they've been tearing the house down. And you need to think about what was happening at your house today. Did your conversation build the house? Did it minister grace to the hearers? You might have had problems to deal with, but did you think through what you were going to say and how you were going to say it and what words you were going to use so that even in dealing with a problem, when all was said and done, what you said contributed to building the house? Or was it torn down today? by what you said and by how you said it. One or the other had to happen. And the exhortation here is, you and I must build the house. Now you see, we have tough things to deal with, don't we, in our homes. Problems arise, all kinds of problems. Misunderstandings, disobedience, uh, different kinds of problems, health problems, financial problems, car problems, who knows. There's all kinds of things that can contribute to great difficulty in our homes. And you and I cannot simply react. You can't go through life reacting and just kind of spouting off and saying whatever happens to come to your mind. You and I have to care enough about what we say that we think again, of what we say and how we're saying it and how it is going to be received by the hearer. Now, you know something? Most of us, and I'll probably get in trouble for this with somebody, but especially gals are masters at knowing what to say at a certain time to hurt deeply. We're all good at it. But sometimes that's our way of getting back and we have no idea what damage we are doing to our mates, and listen to me, often to our children. And we have to start to think about it. Because again, those hurts are often the deepest that anyone will experience. 
I won't take time tonight to illustrate from some experiences I know of, but I probably don't have to because you know what I'm talking about. The last guideline from verses 30 through 32 is what I call surrendering our pride in forgiveness. God anticipates that sometimes the lines of communication are broken. Sometimes those lines get broken and he is telling us it cannot stay that way. Right here tonight in this room, the problem of some not speaking to others may be represented. For you, there might be somebody that you have not talked to in a long time and you're not planning on talking to them. Now I want to tell you something, you can't live that way. You can't live that way. Now, verse 30 says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, for a long time, I wondered why verse 30 kind of got inserted into this discussion. At first reading, it doesn't seem to fit. But I believe the reason it is there is because of what follows in verses 31 and 32. There is a dealing here with the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and evil speaking and all that. And when a life is being eaten up by those things, that person often comes to the place of doubting whether or not they are really saved. The bitter person, the malicious person, the evil speaking person, knowing that those things are wrong, and are not characteristic of true Christianity, often looks inside and says, I don't even know if I am saved. At the same time, because of the very context that we are in, we have to recognize that, in fact, people who are saved can end up bitter and malicious and evil-speaking. And we look at them and say, boy, I don't know how that can happen, but God's letting us know it can happen, though it ought not. And so the encouragement of verse 30 is this. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. But a reminder, you are sealed until the day of redemption. Hallelujah. You can't lose your salvation. But you also can't live with these problems. And so he says this. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Hey, you've been hurt, you've been offended, you've been failed and let down, you've been attacked, or whatever it might be. Okay, the lines of communication are broken. The friendship seems to be ended. It's kind of like, well, I don't want to be around that person anymore. Usually folks make this kind of statement, you know, well, I'm not bitter, but I'm never talking to him again. Well, you are bitter if that's where you are. But verse 32, in a threefold way, addresses this kind of problem. We alluded to it in last night's message, but let's look at verse 32. The first thing it says is, and be ye kind one to another. Now, that's an interesting challenge. Because what some folks do is something like this. Well, Charlie hurt me, and I'm done with him. But the Bible says be kind one to another, so I'm going to really be kind to everybody else. Now, in the context, I submit to you that the exhortation, be kind one to another, is an exhortation regarding the very person who has seemingly created in you the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the whole rest of the list. Now, who's the last person in the world you want to be kind to? The person that hurts you. And yet God is challenging us, folks, and this is a great challenge, God is challenging us to get life off of the emotional level and start living life on a spiritual level. You see, when somebody hurts us, it's all emotion, isn't it? We are hurt and we are angry and all this kind of stuff. And God says, now look, you've got to get off that emotional level. You can't live there. 
You watch somebody who lives there, man, they're up one day, they're down the next day, and they, they live on the roller coaster, and you can't live there. Somebody recently was describing her husband to me, and she said, and he was there. She said, he's like on a roller coaster. Then she said, no, it's not a roller coaster, it's a yo-yo. And he kind of sat there, and he, he nodded, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's what it is. You know why? He just lives on emotion. And you know how that is, it's dangerous ground. And you and I live on emotion when somebody has hurt us and we allow it to sink so deeply into us that it begins to affect the way we think and talk and act. God says, hey, you who've been hurt, find that person who hurt you and be kind to them. Now, the breadth of the term kind is simply this, to do something good or nice to somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's like going the second mile. You know, the Roman soldier was able to require a citizen to carry his pack for one mile. And the Lord Jesus said, when that happens, take it the second mile. Because that's when you have the opportunity to witness for Christ, if you know what I mean. I mean, if you have to go the first mile, but if you go the second mile, the mile that nobody expects you to go, that's when you have a chance to demonstrate your testimony. Peter warned, as did other writers, hey, if you're kind to people who are kind to you, that's no big deal. It's when you're kind to people who aren't kind to you that it means something. And so that's the challenge. And listen, that's the beginning of some real victory. Look for that person. You might even make it a matter of prayer. Lord, give me the opportunity to be kind to that person who hurt me. See, we usually think differently. Somebody hurt us and, uh, you know, we're driving down the road, it snowed like it did the other night, and, and we're driving down the road and there they are in a snowbank. What do we tend to think? Do we think, oh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to stop and help this person and be kind? No, we don't do that. We drive by, toot the horn, said he finally got what he deserved. And we go on thinking, yes, the Lord is just. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. What is happening is the Lord is giving us an opportunity to go the second mile. And I want to tell you something. If you and I could get on a spiritual level, it would be pretty exciting if we'd see the very person who hurt us in a situation where only we could help. I challenge you to get there, especially if you're in the midst of some hurt right now. Take it before the Lord and say, Lord, Give me the opportunity to be kind to that person. God might do it. He then says this in the verse, Be ye kind one to another, and then this great statement, one word, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Is your heart tender tonight? I hope it is. We had a little school of theology at Bible Baptist Church, and I used to say to the fellows there who were being trained for the ministry simply this, the day you get a hard heart, you're no longer fit for the ministry. The day you let yourself get calloused and hard because of the trials and the hurts that go along with the ministry, the day that happens, you're done. Get out of the ministry. You can't be any good for God and you can't be any good for your people. That's not just for men in the ministry. That's for every single one of us. It is a dangerous thing to ever allow to develop within you a hard and calloused heart. I talked with a lady not long ago. She and her husband seemingly near divorce. And I said to him, will you try again? And I tried to give some counsel. He said, yes, I will. It was easy for him. He was the offender. I said to her, will you try again? She said something like this, I'll never let myself get hurt like that again. I understood why she said it, but listen, with that attitude, their marriage never could have a chance. And there are lots of people who are going through life like that. They look to times when they've been hurt and they put up the wall and say, I'm never going to let myself get hurt like that again. And guess what? You've got to. 
You've got to. Nobody likes to be hurt. Nobody says, oh, Lord, please, you know, let me get hurt some more. But every single one of us, no matter what we've been through, must have this attitude. Lord, I don't want to be hurt, but if you see that somehow that's what ought to happen or that's what needs to happen, then, Lord, I'm willing to be hurt again. And only when you have that attitude can your marriage make it because there's going to be a whole lot of hurts in marriage. And by the way, that's the only way you make it as a Christian. Who here has never been hurt? But woe unto the person who has been hurt so many times that they have now somehow drawn a line and said, I'll never put myself in that position again. Beg God to renew and restore the tender heart. Reject the hard and calloused heart. It will destroy you and it'll destroy a whole lot of people around you. The last thing that is said, and again, we alluded to this last night, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's talk about forgiveness for a few moments. Because to maintain open lines of communication, you must forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. You can't live with somebody in a marriage without their being hurt. And therefore, you've got to be ready and willing to forgive over and over and over again for the rest of your life. How many of you have ever hurt someone and you didn't find out about it until much later? Maybe weeks or months or whatever, somebody told you, you know, did you know you hurt somebody? You said, no, I didn't, I didn't even know I hurt them. Anybody like that? Raise your hand. Yeah, most of you. The rest of you didn't raise your hand. You just haven't found out yet. <laughs> Give it time. You know, the word will come back to you. Listen, if it is true, and it is, that we can hurt people and not even know it and find out about it later, then certainly just the opposite is true. People can hurt us and never know it. Sometimes that happens. People say things to us, they do things to us, and while we might take it very personally, they may have had absolutely no intent at all. And we got hurt and they didn't know it. Now the reason I mention that kind of person is because guess what? That person is probably never going to come back and apologize because they didn't know they hurt you. There's also people who hurt us and they might know that we got hurt, but they have no idea how deeply it offended us. Well, they're probably never going to come back and apologize either because they don't know how deeply they hurt us. And then, you know, there's some other people who kind of go through life hurting others. And they don't care if you're hurt. And they're not coming back to apologize either. In fact, in my experience and probably in yours, it is kind of the rare occasion that somebody comes back and in a right biblical way say, hey, I was wrong, I offended you, will you forgive me? That doesn't happen very often. And too often you and I are going through life with this attitude. I'm not forgiving that guy until he comes back. Well, again, he's not coming. Forgiveness among Christians is not so much for the offender as it is for the offended. In other words, you forgiving somebody is seldom of benefit to set them free because half the time they either don't know or do not care. But on the other hand, as we may mention last night, the bitterness that often accompanies the hurt destroys us and when we forgive it is in fact us who are set free you and I must learn to forgive in fact recognizing the truth of what I said a moment ago the best thing you and I can do is forgive as quickly as possible we said last night forgiveness has to do with recognizing that vengeance is God's business. As quickly as possible, say, Lord, I forgive him. I forgive her. 
I give that person over to you. But Lord, I want to be kind to that person, no matter what they've done. I want a tender heart, no matter what happens to me. And Lord, I want to just keep wiping the slate clean because I want the joy and liberty of my Christian life and I don't want to be bound up with anger and bitterness and all of that mess. And it is really wonderful if when somebody ever does come back, you can quite honestly say to them, hey, I forgave you the moment it happened because then that's real freedom. The lines of communication are kept open. Never is the barrier of communication raised by you. But you're free. You're free because you have life on a spiritual plane, not an emotional plane. Ask God to lift you from all of the heartache of emotion and to lift us to the point where we are living toward the Lord. We are living with spiritual values. We are living on a spiritual level. When you and I get there, we won't have trouble with the communication. And so there's some significant things in this text that you and I, by God's grace, must put into practice. I'm not going to rehearse them. I remember one guy told us when we were in Bible college that when you preach, what you do is you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Well, I kind of told you what I was going to tell you, and I've told you, but I'm not going to tell you again what I told you. But I hope God will work it deeply into our hearts because every one of us need these guidelines operating in our lives every single day.